Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to Cinematic Release, Podcast of the Cinema. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and I'm here with Bo. Say hello, Bo. Hello again. And today we're going to be talking about two movies, uh, The Cullen Brothers 1996 Fargo, and then the Joel Sieber classic, uh, Catch the Heat from, I believe, 1986 or 87. Yes, classic. <laughs> <laughs> you won't believe it. Anyhow, <laughs> let's talk about Fargo. Getting right down to Bryce Taxa. Uh, for those of you who, for some reason, haven't seen Fargo yet, it's basically the Coen brothers' uh, take on the crime gone horribly wrong. And yet they managed to put so much into it, it's more than that. And I almost feel like it's underselling a movie to just say that. Uh, Bo, um, I'm curious, what do you think of Fargo? Well, um, it's a pretty great movie. It really, really is. I think I saw it for the first time when I was, I don't know, way too young to actually get any of it. And then I remember watching it maybe four years ago before the TV show came out and loving every second of it. It's an absolutely fantastic movie. I saw it when I was 16 or 17 and I liked it. Like I wanted to see it in theaters but my sister at the time worked at theaters and the way they sold the movie Fargo when it came out was as a black comedy. Yes. And, and that's it how... is to an extent. Yeah. But at the same time, movies like Fargo hadn't really been made. Like, that's sort of, sort of like, tonal movie. Like, because Fargo dances between a lot of different tones while still maintaining a a solid tone throughout. And it switches to, from genre to genre, almost from scene to scene, really effortlessly, without ever really disrupting the mood of the movie. Which is hard to understand sometimes how it works like that. From it really just, is. No. I've seen this movie many, many times, and I yeah. still am baffled by how seamlessness it is. It's something actually that the show. I'm shocked the show pulls off as well as it does. Well, I didn't think the show was going to last because when they said they were making a show out of Fargo, I was like, "Oh, well, <laughs> that's going to last uh, maybe half a season." And well, we're on three before? now. <laughs> We're on three now, and it's, it's still still great. <laughs> I also love that they, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but they got Bruce Campbell to play Ronald Reagan, right? Yes, yeah, and season two. And Bruce Campbell is in the movie Fargo, too. Not Wait, as Ronald what? Reagan. When is he in the movie? I don't know. I remember seeing him. Um, you know the uh, scene in the cabin where Greer is uh, watching the soap opera? Yeah. That's Bruce Campbell. How did I not notice that? To be fair, I'm a Bruce Campbell like fanatic. I've read his autobiography. If Chen's could kill, I can't believe I didn't notice that. That's that's gonna it's drive okay. me crazy now. <laughs> but it's like, and if you don't know like to look for, it, you probably wouldn't. Cause it's not a clear picture, and it goes in and out of focus a lot. That's true. It is pretty uh, in between him smacking the TV and all that. <laughs> right, but it is. I think it is an American masterpiece. And I just I would... realized I was telling one story and I got sidetracked. <laughs> I wanted yeah, to see happens. the movie in theaters. And my sister said, it's not like the trailers. It's not that funny. And my mom's like, okay, then we're not going to go see it. It's not the trailers lied. It's not funny. I'm like, but I really kind of want to see this. Everyone says it's good. She's like, no. Okay, fine. So it comes to VHS video. Well, for the kids listening, that means it came out of theaters. <laughs> And I watched no it with my brother, and I'm like, this is really good. And only I don't understand, because I'm only 16 or 17. All I know is I like it, but I don't know why. And then... And I, would, hmm? I would disagree with saying it's not funny. Maybe I just have a dark sense of humor, but I find it exceedingly funny. <laughs> it is hysterical, but unless you understand... Like, it's one of those things where, again, like, people... When you say comedy, people are expecting a certain type of comedy. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of the comedy in the movie comes either before or after a horrific incident. Or it comes in a place where it's not meant to be funny, but it's only funny because there's a contrast of tone. 
A perfect example when Stan, Wade, and Jerry are sitting together at the Shoney's or Denny's talking about the ransom. Yeah. And as they get ready to leave, Jerry goes to pay the check, and the waitress is this unduly chirpy lady of, Hey, thanks for coming. Did you have a good time? (laughs) And it's funny, but that's only because we know what they were talking about. So far as she's concerned, she's just trying to be be in a good mood so she gets a good tip. And because I'm mean, I love all the minor characters pulling off the exceedingly nice Minnesota persona. (laughs) Exactly. And it's one of the things where, like, I know there was a lot of criticism, like, they don't say ya that much. I'm like, they really don't say ya that much in the movie. Like, they say it a lot, but only, like, as a repetition thing, but it's only, like, the way people say howdy in the Midwest. The only time it was really exceeding is when she's talking to the is when Marge is talking to the prostitutes and that's like yeah 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 <laughs> like five times back and forth. And that was meant to show just how unfailingly and unflinchingly nice Marge Gunderson is. Yes, because it's clear that those two prostitutes are not the brightest bulbs in the box. No, go bears. That might be. That might be one. That might be one of the few, like, criticism I can understand people coming out of it thinking it's real mean if that's how they're making people think of Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I don't think that's what they're trying to do. I don't think that's what they're trying to do. It's just how it ends up because people don't understand always what, why they chose to make characters that way. Right, like, I don't think there's any sort of animosity or meanness to Minnesotans whatsoever. I think the Coen brothers love the Minnesotans. And the sort of an awe, the sort of like unflaringly sort of optimism in the face of these horrific events. Yeah. <laughs> You'll never see a nicer um, examination of a crime scene ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's. Uh, I think, honestly, Marge Gunderson is one of my favorite characters in, a, in, in American cinema. Because she is, on one hand, nice, on the other hand, incredibly smart. Yes, and that's what I love about this whole Fargo universe. It's it's so easy to look at the oh, yeah, you betcha, and think oh well, they're just that. It's what it kind of challenges that whole well, these are just stupid backwood cops thing that you would assume when you first see her. She's right. incredibly that, capable. Like, you can tell that the people in her department respect her authority. Mm-hmm. And to the same point that like the way she corrects. Uh, the whole officers is very much in a sort of like, oh, I don't think I agree 100% with your police work there, Lou. Oh? Yeah? <laughs> I think DLR, I think that might stand for dealer plates? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Lou, did you hear that one I joke? And then she just follows it up with, hey, let's be buds. So he never really no. feels like he's been corrected Not... or yelled at. It's just so much as, oh, hey, I had this other idea. Doesn't it make sense? Yeah. And yeah, it does. I just... Yeah, Exactly. It's not, oh, you're a moron. It's, hey, maybe it's this, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's the thing. With most American crime dramas, the cop would be the asshole. It would be the downtrodden, alcoholic, I don't play by the rules, jackass. I'm smart as I love that. And we have the polar opposite of Marge Gunderson, who is in a very loving relationship, relates well with everyone around her. And at the same time, can understand by looking at a murder scene almost intuitively what happened. And at the same time, isn't so unrealistically capable that you're drawn out of it because she, at the end, she's not like, okay, I got a perfect shot, bam, no, it's a struggle because it's, she's still just a normal human being. And she doesn't put it all together, it takes her some time. And even then, when she goes to visit Jerry the second time, I don't think she quite realizes he's, like, in on it, but I think she realizes something's up. Yeah, like, when he runs, she's like, wait a minute, he's running! Wait, what? <laughs> he's <laughs> fleeing I... the interview! <laughs> There's only one reason anyone flees an interview, and it's not because they want to get something for the cops. Yeah, it's not, she didn't go there thinking, okay, I know he did something, she goes there, well, there's something suspicious, and then it's, oh, wait, he's running, he did something. <laughs> exactly. I think there's there's a scene in the movie when I saw the uh, Fargo the first two or three times I didn't know why it was there 
And I think critics oftentimes have a knee-jerk reaction to when there's a scene that we're, that we're confronted with that doesn't make any sense, we write the scene off. The scene I'm talking about is the one with, between um, Marge and um, Mike Yanagichi. Mike Yanagita, sorry. Uh, yeah, I can, underst- I can understand how people would think that about that scene. Hmm? I can understand that. I can understand how people would think that about that scene. You know, the first time you see it, the first couple times. Yeah, because it doesn't really add anything to the overall movie. And then you find out... When she finds out that the way he's acting is a lie. And when she goes back to Jerry, we realize that Jerry and Mike are acting exactly the same way. Yes. And that's what triggers it. Like, maybe I should go back and talk to Mitchell Undergaard. She realizes, well, maybe it's if she's not automatically jumping to suspicion, I mean, that's just her generally nice persona. Well, and there's a lot of, like, all the little tiny details that make Fargo so damn great. Like, we've talked about, like, the way they talk, but the way they talk really is a huge part of this movie. It's like yeah, it's, it's the identity to... that. Hmm? Like, Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> there's such a wonderful little like when they're sitting at the dinner table with uh, Wade's father-in-law. Well, sorry, with uh, Jerry's father-in-law, Wade, and the son's like, "Hey, can I go? Uh, I'm done eating." And I'm like, "Yeah, you can go." And he's like, he, "He's going. Where's he going?" McDonald's. McDonald's. And he says, he doesn't say McDonald's, says McDonald's. <laughs> and he goes, where's he going? He's not done, and he's going to McDonald's. What do you think he's going to be doing at McDonald's? It's like the, like this one scene that shows you this entire family in a microcosm. And all the relationships of, clearly Jerry is the least loved one by the good father-in-law. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no doubt about that. I'm sorry, Bob. I'm just having a little trouble hearing you. Really? Okay, sorry about that. (laughs) Okay, say that again. Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Sorry. Are you good? Can you hear me? I can hear you. All right. Um, Okay, where were we? Uh, Sorry about that. Jerry, Jerry and his family. Yeah. Um... I, and I really just appreciate, like, because I, I watched the movie again before we started, because I watched it a couple of days ago, and I watched it again, because it's not one of my favorite movies, but my wife and I, we have movies that we love watching together, and one of them is Fargo. And it's one of them also because, of going back, is Marge Gunderson, who, as a woman, is one of the best characters the Coen Brothers ever created, and probably one of the best characters in cinema of the last 20th century. I don't know why, but I was actually surprised to see that. I don't know why. Maybe I just don't pay attention to the list. I just did not think that she would get that kind of credit. Right. Well, it's one of the things where you just look at it and you think about, like, how many times do you see a competent woman who's pregnant going about a job and no one ever once says you can't do that? No one ever once says no. And they all they all understand. Um, she's in charge, and she's the best of us. So we'll just kind of listen to her. <laughs> right, and not only that, but like they don't ever say like they never make the point to go. Oh, just because she's pregnant, meaning she's not. No, no. We see the pregnancy affects her. How she gets up in the morning, the fact that she gets morning sickness, how she walks and sits down. You see her struggle getting in and out of chairs, but she doesn't care because yes, she's pregnant, but she still has a job to do. And it's none of this sort of like. She's not a woman, so we won't treat her. No, they treat her like a woman, and they treat her with respect. They treat her like a human being, essentially. What an odd concept. I know, right? <laughs> and then, like, to go even further, further, the relationship between Marge and her husband, Norm, is one of my favorite relationships ever. Because it's also the most healthy. Starting from when she it's gets woken stunning. up in the... You would be- hmm? It's stunning, because you think, well, this might end up being one of those, well, I ended up saddled with someone in this small town. You think it might go in that direction? Nope, not even a 
little bit. No. I don't love them so much. They adore each other. <laughs> like, yes. when she gets woken up in the middle of the night to be told that the triple homicide, she gets up and Norm goes, you got a call? Yeah, all right. You can go back to bed, honey. It's cool. No, you need to eat. No, hon, I'm not really hungry. <laughs> nope, you need to eat breakfast. And then that nice little shot of them just <laughs> eating breakfast. He's still in his little long johns. She's all, like, dressed up. And then you see her walk down the stairs, get inside the police car, and there's, like, two seconds. Then she comes back in and goes, Norm, Prowler needs a jump. And it's just a, like, <laughs> utter symbiotic relationship. And also rooted in reality because anyone who lives anywhere where the snow or weather affects the cars, you do know that sometimes, yeah, you got to go help the partner jumpstart the car because cars aren't perfect. <laughs> and sometimes those cars set on fire. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> there's, like, even, like, and there's always, like, little bits of, business that tell you that the other is always thinking of the other. Like, when after Marge gets through assessing the crime scene, she goes, let's go to Dave's. What You don't think he's mixed up in all of this, do you? Oh, no, 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 I just want to get Norm some Nightcrawlers. Ah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then she gets there, and he brought her lunch. All of these. And, like, they're so, like, constantly looking out for each other, and constantly, like, these little things, giving each other pep talks. And, like, there's one moment, one moment when they're at a buffet and one of her um, officers comes, like, oh, yeah, we got this um, telex out of Minneapolis. Might have to go down there. It's like, oh, looks like I'll be going down there today. And Norm has this look of, oh? And you can tell it's a look of, we're going to have a conversation about this. And Marge just goes, yeah. And that's almost saying, well, I'm going to have a conversation. We just did, and I'm going. <laughs> And, like, that's about the most of the argument that ever happens in the movie. Yeah, and I really love how the movie ended on them, too. That was, And it ended with, you know, he has his stamp subplot throughout the whole thing, and it's just kind of there and not important to anything, but it's important to Marge, and she never lets it not be important, no matter how much Norm's on, well, it doesn't really matter, and I'm not going to win. It's so nice to see her all throughout the movie, and then at the end, you know, he gets his stamp, and he's like, yeah, but it's not the an, an expensive stamp, and she's it's like, so what? Everyone uses, yeah, everyone uses the three-cent stamp. What do you do when the postage goes up? <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's really funny is, while there are many, many themes throughout the movie, there is one unifying theme, and that is money, or the idea of, like, if I just get this little bit of money, everything will be fine. The desire to have something more, and yet Marge and Norm don't want anything more, and they're perfectly content. They're yeah. happy with what they can. She probably could have married better, but she doesn't think so. She loves Norm and thinks he's the best person in the world. It's like when Mike Yanagita is like, oh, so you finally went and married Norm, son of a Gunderson. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I love the fact that that was his nickname. Yeah, that's, I don't know, that seems a little, I would, I wonder when he got that. I'm assuming high school based on him being a high school friend. I can't right. think of it. I wouldn't think any high school kids would be clever enough for son of a Gunderson. <laughs> Maybe they I just. in the Cohen universe, and that's the point. That That's true. <laughs> well, like. Going back to how people interact, there's a scene between one of the officers and the bartender who calls in talking to Steve Buscemi at the bar. It's that scene where they're standing outside and they both have the hoods up and you can barely see the faces. The guy's shoveling the driveway. Yeah. Yeah. And the way they talk, I'm like, the guy ta do, uh, giving the interview, it's not the most... He's not the best storyteller there is. And he's just giving it point blank of, I was talking to this guy, what he looked like? Oh, he was funny looking. In what <laughs> way? Mm, you know, the usual funny looking way. Okay. I like how that's the only description anyone has for, uh... Steve Buscemi? Yeah. <laughs> well, because this is like one of Steve Buscemi's first big roles. And honestly, Steve Buscemi is funny looking. Uh, yeah, I mean, even he would probably admit that. 
And well, like I, well, I shouldn't say he's funny looking, but he looks different than most people who are famous, even by today's standards. He has a distinctive jawline, let's show you. Hey, it is what it is. He's not complaining. He's rich and famous and been in all kinds of great stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, um... It's just such a gorgeous movie inside and out. I am struck by how much the music is basically the same throughout the entire movie, and yet each time it perfectly fits with the mood of every scene, even though they switch genres and moods. It is, and that's they kept that you know on through the show because that's just how good that was for this style and the tone it just it fit every time you play it it's just yeah that was right for that moment well uh the composer is carter burwell carter burwell and he's done a lot of Coen brothers movies but he also did um uh kill that movie with Kate blanchett and rooney mara from a couple of years ago which was one of my favorite movies of that year which if you haven't seen that oh my god anyhow before we get lost lost in the <laughs> Ravings of Kale. Yeah. Let's get back to Fargo. We have another movie to do before we can do any other recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it is... It's it's one of those movies where I watch time and time again, and I'm always just baffled by how... I can't describe why it's great. I just know it's great. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way, and I feel like I... I should be saying more, but I don't know. It's it's hard to describe for me. I don't I don't have like a big uh, a film uh, language, you know, at my disposal. It's just it's it is absolutely one of those movies where it is so much more than the sum of its parts might suggest. And I don't know how else to say it. Well, I'm going to read you a couple of quotes that I have. One is from Roger Ebert, calling. Fargo, a movie that worked on so many levels, it was a little like a film festival all its own. And then his counterpart, Gene Siskel, I've seen Fargo four times, I could see it every week. That's a pretty good uh, endorsement. It is, and also very true, because as we said, since, going back to Ebert's quote, it does feel like there are so many different types of films within Fargo. Going back to the dinner scene with the father-in-law and the family. Going to the scenes between Carl Showalter and Greg Grimson. Uh, Peter Stromer and Steve Buscemi's character. Like, those are all different movies, and yet they're all part of this one movie, and they never feel like they don't belong in the same movie. Yeah, I... I, I mean, it really does. There's, there's... Somehow they get this mix. I don't know how they do it, but... And when they invade uh, Jerry's house, you know, to kidnap his wife, and also when they're in the cabin, it's just, I don't know how they managed to make it so funny, yet at the same time, terrifying. You know, like, when she falls down the stairs, it's, oh my god, this poor lady, but at the same time, oh my god, she has the shower curtain wrapped around her, what a moron. <laughs> I know. Well, and I think it's because it goes back to, like, the minutia of detail of realism. Because, like, they allow you, like, okay, this is a poor, this poor woman's in danger, but let's be honest, that's kind of stupid. And we tend to laugh at stupidity, <laughs> even our own. <laughs> and, like, just in the back of, like, she's just standing there just looking at Steve Shimmy's character as he basically gets ready to break into the house. She doesn't, like, yeah. get up and call anyone. She's like, oh, hey, what's going on out there? That looks like, oh, no! <laughs> I guess ski mask may be normal when it's, you know, negative 20 or something. <laughs> but yet, at the same time, he has a crowbar in his hand, so that should be, like, an indicator that something good is not going to happen here. <laughs> well, not only that, but they also... Oh, maybe, he's, maybe she... Hmm? Listen, maybe, she, maybe she's thinking... He, he's, oh, oops, I guess maybe something in his car froze shut. He can't pry it open. <laughs> something like that. Maybe he's looking for some help. I... <laughs> Yeah. Either way, she just... cottons on just a just a minute too slow, and that's unfortunately <laughs> seals her fate. Yeah. But they they allow the absurdity absurdity of the situation to blossom on its own. Like Stan Grossman shouldn't be the deciding factor in your decisions unless your name is Wade. 
But when Jerry is talking to his son Scotty, trying to assure him everything is great, he goes, "Yeah, just ask Stan Grossman." <laughs> Jerry, like, he like doesn't his care son. what Stan Grossman thinks on this particular matter. No. He wants his mother. <laughs> yes, come on, man. What the hell does Stan Grossman have to do with anything? I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't care if he called. <laughs> Although I do love Stan Grossman, just the idea of Stan Grossman. Of everyone's like, just ask Stan. Stan knows. You know Stan. <laughs> and they the, actually the brought him. The mythology of Stan Grossman in the Fargo universe. Yeah, because yeah, they brought him back in season three. Not him, but they're you know they're just randomly talking about what to do. These two characters just randomly talking about what they can do about these organization that's moving in on their business and they're thinking and they end up on a tangent about why did we buy this parking lot and <laughs> well you were gonna turn it into uh you were gonna turn it into um condos or something oh yeah we should call stan grossman about that behind authority. There's always the shadow government. <laughs> Who knew it would be Stan Grossman's shadow government, but alright. It must be a solid shadow government. Manipulating Wade. <laughs> he's manipulating Wade, he's manipulating Jerry, he probably <laughs> hired everyone, he's behind it all. Well, and one thing I've always sort of loved is like the impl- implications because watching the movie a little bit before, it, it never really dawned on me. I don't know why. Wade owns the car dealership. Yeah. And Jerry is like fourth in command, in line of command. His yeah, dad, I remember oh, this. His... You, don't, you don't really... Because they don't ever really say yet. Or I think May is... I think they do at some point mention the name of the... Uh, I think near the end, Marge asks about it. You know, because it's the sausage motors. But... You don't really think about it. It just makes you realize how low on the totem pole Jerry is, even with his family. Right. It's like, like you see, it's like, it's like, I should know. I'm the executive sales manager. It's like, that's all you are? You should be more. <laughs> yeah. and not only that, the but they also... Son. Hmm? <laughs> You're the guy's son. You should be, I don't know, at least third? <laughs> I'm, at the very least, you should be like the district manager or something. <laughs> um, but there's a what what I what I've always loved about the movie is why Jerry needs the money isn't important. It's the fact that Jerry's no, willing I think to the first do time all I watched... of this for the money yes. is important. I think the first time I watched it. I think the first time I watched it, I was kind of like, well, what does he need the money for? What does he need the money for? I'm trying to figure it out. It's, okay, well, he's got the fake cars. It, it doesn't matter. It just matters that he needs the money. <laughs> right, and because if he, it doesn't even matter what, even if it was like because he was having an affair, none of it would matter. The matter is he would sell everyone down the river for it. The fact that he comes off as a sort of nice, ingratiating guy the, what what is showing us is he's not. In fact, that of all the people in the movie, he's the m- most dishonest and the most terrifying. Because everyone else is almost exactly as advertised, except Jerry. Yeah, talking about this is making me realize just how much the first season lifted from the movie, which is understandable, but it is making me realize. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons why I didn't really want to watch the show, because I was like, are you, are you just going to do the movie? You're not going to be the Coen Brothers. You're well, not going to be nearly no, as good. They- that they don't, and it's worth it. Trust me, it is really worth it. It's a fantastic show. I have to get into it. I I, I wanted to get into it the moment I heard Bruce Campbell played Reagan in an episode. I'm like that's too beautiful. It, it has a great cast. I, like, I think the first season Martin Freeman plays um one of the the, the main. Well, I don't want to say protagonist. It's not really the protagonist, but basically he's like Jerry. It's and, and even down to the 
oh, he's the nicest guy, and then throughout as he does things and does things and does things, and then he eventually does something horrible that you you end up hating him more than the um, assassin running around that's like the devil made flesh. You hate you hate Martin <laughs> Freeman's character more than, than that guy because at least the assassin's not lying to himself. Right. Well, and going back to the style of Fargo the movie, of all the Coen Brothers movies, it is the one that is the style is there, but you have to really understand what you're looking for to see it on the first run, because it just looks like a really well-made movie. It's not as overtly stylistic as other Coen Brothers movies are. The Coen Brothers have this sort of like two steps to the left of reality tone to the movies. And this one, from the opening get-up, and when they tell you this is all based on a true story, it feels like them just relating some sort of urban legend. Hello? Hello? Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. But yeah, no, like, I've always been impressed by, like, I know everyone loves The Big Lebowski, and they should. It's a great movie, and they love it by the water, though. But there's something just sort of... It's like the Coen brothers drape themselves as someone else, but still behaved exactly like the Coen brothers. Because... Yeah, it does have... Yeah, it's very distinct, but, you know, you can kind of tell how it doesn't have that, like you were saying, it's not the... It's not like if you're watching No Country for Old Men and you can, like, there's a very clear style to it, like the Cohen style to it, yeah. Well, yeah, like, even down to, like, I think one of the reasons it builds tension so well, and this is just a random theory I came up with watching a movie a couple days ago, is throughout most of the film, are you familiar with the rule of three? I think so remind me <laughs> rule of three is basically or remind everyone else and i'll pretend i know <laughs> <laughs> well played sir well played <laughs> the rule of three is a writing rule that says repetition works at its best when it's repeated three times it's also a subliminal way to let the audience know that this information is important and they lodge it in their brain for later use throughout the first two acts of this movie there's a, a tension and I think one of the ways they form that tension is, if you notice, they only they repeat themselves, but they only do it twice. And that just makes everything off-kilter in our minds because we've been conditioned to the rule of three, because that's how everyone writes. That this one little breakage of the rule makes everything feel just a little bit off. And it creates a sort of unease in you because you're like, I'm waiting for something. And you're waiting for the third time. And it's not until Marge goes back to Jerry after she's, like, something's clicked after the Mike Yamagita scene that they start repeating things three times. And then there's a sort of ease that happens. If you notice, like, in the third act, the tone shifts and the uneasiness dissipates, but it's still tight and it's still engrossing. It's just you are now allowed to breathe because they're starting to behave normally again, if that makes any sense. That's pretty interesting. I'm going to have to pay attention to that next time I watch. Yeah, just, it just occurred to me because I was watching it, and I realized, like, they're only saying things once or twice. Like, they repeat themselves, but they don't repeat themselves a third time, which is how, when you write, that's how it works, because that's how you build up a rhythm. But they start to build up a rhythm and stop. And even, like, the second time, when, when they repeat themselves, they may not even repeat it exactly the same, and that's enough to throw off the psychological kilter, I guess, if that's the phrase. Like, uh, when they get pulled over yeah, by I, the... Hmm? Yeah, I was gonna say, that you can, you're definitely right. It just, it does feel like... It does feel that little bit off. You can tell throughout the first... I never really thought about why. I just figured, you know, because I'm not sure. I don't know this stuff as well as you probably do. But you're right, it does feel off and just, like, there's that missing piece. Well, like... When they get pulled over after they kidnapped Jean, Jerry's wife, and they get pulled over by the highway patrol officer and Brainerd, and it's like, oh, I don't have my tags. And he basically tries to bribe the officer with money. And he, and he repeats the line of, I figured I'd get it taken care of right here in Brainerd, so, you know, I'd be in compliance. And he does that line again, but 
it's some more pauses between like I know I want to be in compliance so I want to take it like right take care of it right now here and brain it and like yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. really I don't know I could just be you know weeding fig leaves but still <laughs> I love that scene and I don't really know why I love it so much I, I kind of attribute it to Buscemi a lot of times but I don't know just the way he's yeah I'll take care of it here (laughs) dude catch the hint (laughs) well I love that scene too not just because of the shimmy but because the way they lit it which is almost entirely by interior the interior lights of the car and the headlights of the car behind them they allow the darkness the Minnesota darkness to be total because when they get out of the car like there's no moon or stars or nothing and it's just sort of backlit and it's all this sort of lovely film noir stuff. And then that's when all this sort of horrific violence happens. And that's typically how it happens in Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> and now that we've spent almost 40 minutes talking about what is... I think every movie podcast eventually comes to Fargo. It has to. It's too much of <laughs> and, an American classic. Well, little FYI before we move on. Again watch a show it's absolutely amazing and uh, for those who do love the movie the money he buries comes back to play in the first season totally oh, really? unrelated to, yes totally unrelated to any of these people just someone <laughs> happens to find it and it uh, fuels a subplot for about I think three or four episodes yeah, I, I'm definitely going to have to give this a shot if only for the Stan Grossman call out I love that idea so much <laughs> And uh, they also, uh, who, I think there's also, uh, trying to remember who else is mentioned in the first season. I, I want to say it was Lundegaard something, but I don't know. Is, is there any Lundegaards left? <laughs> <laughs> there's just be Scotty, really. And what the hell is Scotty? Scotty was a C-ever maybe. student. What the fuck is he going to be doing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he, maybe that snapped him straight. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty traumatic thing to go through. <laughs> Alright, switching gears now to a movie that has some things in common with Fargo, and the fact that a crime happens and it has a female protagonist. We move and, on to, to... And funny, I guess. <laughs> it is, I think it's hilarious at times. It is, it is hilarious. <laughs> we move on to the 1987 Catch the Heat starring Tiana Alexandra and David Duke and Rod Steiger. Directed by Joel Sibling, sorry, Joel Silberg, and written by Sterling Syphilant, it is basically a movie with two federal officers go on an undercover drug sting in Buenos Aires, and that's about it. Everything else is just insanity. Yeah, I really don't even know where to begin. <laughs> Let's begin with the title character, played by Tiana Alexandria, the half-Chinese, half-Jewish Checkers Goldberg. Checkers Goldberg. Come on! <laughs> Which might be my favorite thing this movie has given us. <laughs> I actually invented a rule for myself called the Checkers Goldberg Rule. In which, and when I'm watching a movie, I say to myself, Okay, how bad is this movie? Could it be better with or without Checkers Goldberg? <laughs> okay, I'm a defender here. I can, unless it's a super serious movie, everything would be better with Checkers Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's how you know, like, a movie is really bad. Because like, when I'm watching, like, uh, the last um, Resident Evil movie, I'm like, this movie needs Chekhov's Goldberg. Like, yes. Yes. Oh, my God. It's the missing piece from those movies. Holy crap. <laughs> because even though this movie is severely misogynistic and in some ways oddly racist, Blatantly, sometimes. (laughs) Extremely blatantly racist. (laughs) It is a sort of refreshing that because she is a strong female character, even though the movie never really lets her be, like, because Tiana Alexandra is a martial martial artist who was trained by Bruce Lee, there is a sort of self-possession that she has that even though the movie never allows it, it comes through regardless. Yeah, she always, every step of the way, feels like she's a character from a better movie that just happened to get trapped in whatever the (laughs) hell this was. Well, like, when you're watching the opening credits, 
David Duke, who plays Waldo Toy, her partner, gets first villain, and you're like, why? <laughs> it's I clearly... I just remember being excited because Shao Kahn was in this movie. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's how young I am. That's what I know him from. Crappy Mortal Kombat movie. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> because it's weird. Because there is a sort of nebbishness to his character. And I'm just like, why are you the... Wait, wait. You're the sex symbol? No. No. <laughs> I refuse to believe that you're the romantic interest in this movie. Like, there's a lot of, like, his flirting sort of borderlines on harassment, but you understand what they're trying to do. It just comes off as, like, ew, this is creepy. It's a bad writer's version of flirting, and <laughs> I don't know. Maybe some people find it romantic. I'm not going to judge, because, hey, we all have our thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the opening scene where she's undercover, and she's basically, like, the guy is like, you know what, you know what, screw this. I was just going to do this drug deal, but now I'm going to rape you. Yeah. <laughs> and she plays along to some extent, and then she's like, the moment it like, comes, and she basically ducks out, and everyone with the guns pops up. It's like, oh, it was a sting all along. And then she kicks him in the face twice. And the guy's <laughs> like, hey, what's that all about? <laughs> and I'm like, well, you tried to rape her. Of course she's pissed. <laughs> and Lobo's just... like, hey, you don't understand. Her sister was murdered and raped. I'm yeah. Like, yeah, I get that, but you also tried to rape her, so that's why she's pissed. And I, I don't understand why they threw that in there. It literally has no bearing on anything else in the rest of the movie. I, I mean, was the act of nearly being raped not enough reason? <laughs> it was like, it's like, you know, that she has a tragic uh, background. I get it, but she was also just almost raped, so that's why. Do you understand? Do you not understand why that's why she's pissed now? <laughs> like, I, I mean, get why that would question. give her like reason to be like a warrior for the cause. Outside of you know, rape is wrong. Although the, this movie did kind of just kind of throw it in there for no reason, it seems, because they did it again. They had they had the uh, Maria was that her yeah. name? Yeah, because they had her rape too. Why? There's. <laughs> He was just supposed to kill her. There was no, yeah. like, there's a meanness and a darkness at the sort of edges of the film that I don't think the movie realizes as being. It's like if it's like a movie that was belongs today but was made back then, where you just kind of throw in something horrible just because you got to know that's they're bad, horrible people. <laughs> well, in getting back to Deanna Alexandria, I feel like this was supposed to be a vehicle for her to be a breakout star. And let's, it's not. No one broke out of this movie. <laughs> it tarnishes everybody to this day. And that's kind of, that's kind of sad because, you know, you look up Tiana Alexandra. She seems like a pretty successful and talented person. It kind of right. sucks. kind of sucks she got killed by this, you know? Well, not only that, like, and despite this movie being horrible, <laughs> it's kind of fun to watch. It is. I was constantly see. I had never heard of it, and I'm like Wikipedia, going on Wikipedia looking for it. There's not even a Wikipedia entry for it. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out: was this movie trying to be funny? Was it trying to be this absurd? Because I could give it so much more credit if it was. Well, because it's hard to describe. Because there's a tango scene in this movie. And they stay on the tango scene for the entire duration of the tango dance. And you're like, I don't understand what this movie's doing. And I think that's because I don't think the movie does either. No, and that's why I struggle to give it credit, because it's like, it seems like they just really thought they were being, or trying to be good with this. And I don't know, sorry, you fell short there. Well, everything from, okay, let's let's talk a little bit about Rod Steiger. Have you seen any other movies with Rod Steiger in it? Uh, I'm trying to. Th okay, basically think. the two I movies you I, would know I would be. I, yeah, I think I've seen On the Waterfront because okay, you know who. He's Marlon Brando's brother in that movie. He's the guy who he gives the "I could have been a contender" speech to. I see he's Al Capone as well. I'm surprised I don't remember that because I thought I'd see in every movie with Al Capone. <laughs> Well, there's that, and he's also in The Heat of the Night, which, if you haven't seen, is the movie that he won an Oscar for, and 
he's amazing in that. And then you watch this movie, and you're like, I don't know what's going on. And then you find out that he battled depression, and then you're like, now this is just sad. Yeah, definitely. Because none of the funny moments really have anything to do with him. And you almost feel like there has to be something, because when he comes on, there's something going on. <laughs> yeah, like, there's you enough talent that he's uh, you're, you're drawn to him, but at the same time, it's like, are you on... Uh, you're sleepwalking. You mentioned it. I'm stunned. He was the main bad guy, and he doesn't have a single memorable moment. <laughs> he really doesn't. Was... Like even when he reveals that he has this obsession with uh, Cinderella. Uh, uh, sorry, Czechoslovak Goldberg undercover Cinderella Pooh in one of the more offensive moments. Yeah, come on. <laughs> You know, like, this should be a more memorable scene, but, like, something is, like, it's one of those moments where you, like, you want to make fun of the movie, and yet, at the same time, something is off with Steiger's character of Jason Hannibal and the performance. They, like, I almost feel bad making fun of you. Especially since I know how good and charismatic you are. You're right about that. It's got... Yeah, it is, especially when you learn, you know, that is when he was going through, I think since, what, 1979, he was really battling depression, and it's thing, and he's trying to come back, and he just can't do it because of his depression. Yeah, like, it's one of the things where, like, societally at the time, uh, medically at the time, we we didn't really understand how to, not cure it, but manage it to any successful degree. But now that we've gotten to a weird dark point, let's make that sort of uncomfortable pivot to fun. <laughs> I mean, hey, you can, you can start in some dark places and end up having more fun out of it. <laughs> well, like, there's more chemistry between Waldo and his Buenos Aires counterpart than there is between Waldo and Checkers. Oh, 100%. <laughs> They were, come on, they're all over each other at the end there. No, we're going to go get a beer. I'm going to go get you lobster. Lobster, you say it, lobster. It's like, what is going on with you two? Like, there's, a, there's more chemistry. Like, they have a sort of Tango and Cash type chemistry. So that when the scene happens when Waldo confesses his love for Chekhov, I'm like, well, the scene is all over the place. And I don't, I've never heard so much profanity. It was like, fucking love you, Jesus Christ, god damn it. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that's how you're supposed to do it, buddy. I think that's how you confess when you're angry that you're confessing to someone. <laughs> I don't want to be in love with you. Fucking, I hate this. <laughs> Not to mention the scene comes after that she's realized, oh yeah, they've been smuggling drugs in these women's drug imp- in the breast implants. So that's why they mutilated her. This is not the time to go full tilt in confession of your love. This is the time when you go, oh shit, this is horrible. Yeah, plus it was so obvious you're in love with her, so just just let it exist in the background to explain why he does things the weird way he does. That's fine. (laughs) Well, like, going back to what we're talking about, like, there's actually a fun movie in this, like, a fun knowing movie struggling to get out. Like it when... is. It's, it's so close to being a great 80s action flick. It, it's like surprisingly, if they had just let it be that, but it feels like they didn't want it to be that, I guess. Well, no, it's one of the things where, and this is what I call the uh, Michael Bay problem of like, you've seen a bunch of great movies. And so you know what works, or you think you do. And so you basically put all the pieces together, but since you don't have the intellectual forethought to understand why they work, it's like you're like a child assembling a Frankenstein monster. And so That's things you've seen in other good. movies that work, you go, hey, I consciously recognize that as something I normally would like. But you are yeah. fucking this up. Yeah, see, you're right. That's You can feel it every step of the way. That's absolutely, you can feel that with this movie. Well, like when he makes the phone call to call to check us down to Buenos Aires, and the Buenos Aires counterpart's like, hey, who you calling? I'm calling my partner in San Francisco. San Francisco? Haven't you heard about our national debt? It's like, <laughs> about it. My bank owns it. 
<laughs> and I'm like, that's a weird sort of like you should like a weird sort of like flash of intelligence and humor that the movie doesn't normally have. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. All I remember from that was just the random. Uh creepy nudity where you're just she's listening to the phone call and the guy in the car is just sitting there staring at her i keep waiting for her to say something or at least be like you know what fine you want to stare and just like rip her shirt off or something (laughs) no instead it goes in a sort of creepy misogynistic thing that we mentioned earlier of like the dude's just gonna stare and she's gonna call attention to it and kind of put up a fight about how offensive cinderella Pooh is and then it's like, <laughs> I need you to be flat-chested. I thought you were a trained observer. Okay, you really need to point out the fact how that's a, literally an absurd request to make of someone. <laughs> it's like you, it's like going up to a guy, it's like, I need you to go undercover. Oh yeah, put on this fat suit. That'd be realistic. <laughs> <laughs> That'll fool him. <laughs> but yes, so the Catch the Heat is... Mind-boggling, to say the least. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm like, I don't know. This feels like a movie I'm desperate to figure out now, and it's weird how I can't. I'm shocked I have never heard of this before. It seems like one of those movies that people would love nowadays because of how cheesy it is and how completely weird it is. I stumbled on this movie via Reddit, and like the Reddit wasn't even talking about the movie. It was just one of those things where they had a gif, and someone asked where the gif came from. And they said, the, <laughs> it's from this movie. And I was like, that looks like a weird movie. And, so, <laughs> and I can't find it anywhere. That's because it was under a different name. It's under Catch the Heat. And I forget, I forget the name that I discovered it under. Yeah, because I did see Conflicting, and I, it was something else, The Heat. Right, right, it was like Feel the Heat or something like that. Yeah. I think she. I, I think. I, I think. Uh, Tiana Alexander just likes the word heat because she has a music video, something like <laughs> "Feel the Heat" or something too. <laughs> well, not only that, but the song that plays over the end after they have murdered countless people, and from what I can tell, may have actually successfully instigated a political coup. <laughs> yeah, they never made clear who owned the mansion, except that it was political. Well, was this political figure there, or does he just fund it? Well, like, and if he does, either way, you've just captured the castle. Yeah. So nothing in Buenos Aires is going to be the same. You've affected something here. Like, something has to change. Like, there's going to be a headline article in the New York Times, surely, about the... <laughs> This is going to be a Netflix documentary in 30 years. <laughs> it's like, you've done something, and then at the end, it's like them doing that weird sort of uneasy banter between each other, and then they close the door, and... <laughs> it, 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 it really got to me. Every time she did the yeah, 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 she always paused for like five seconds before she did it, and it always was like, why are you pausing? I know what you're about to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, like... Going back, like, the song that plays is... Let's see here. Um, I have the, some of the lyrics written down because it's so absurd. Captive in the heat of the night, there's just me and you, make it last forever. Which is a classic 80s love ballad. But yeah. the problem is that the camera's focused on the helicopter blades. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I was then trying the helicopter to... taking off, and the music swells. I'm like, what? none of this meshes with what I'm hearing. Yeah, it's like, is that, is the, is the I mean, maybe I'm just behind on my symbolism. Does the rotating helicopter blades imply they're screwing? I'm confused. <laughs> and that would be weird because there were other people inside the helicopter. <laughs> I mean, that would, that would be so weird compared to everything else in the movie, so I was okay with that at that point. <laughs> well, and can we just talk about, like, there are moments... In which the screenwriter had to be like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going all out. When the, <laughs> in the, uh, the Maria, the dancer who was raped and murdered, when they're inside her apartment, and Chekhov's is like, could you leave me alone, please? And the guy's like, what? For how long? Just for a while. And Walter goes, and I'm quoting, what's a while? To which she replies, more than a minute, less than forever. 
Uh, and I'm like, what are you, a Coen Brothers movie? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think that might have been the one where I thought, okay, that's why this is part of the Fargo, because this had a lot of lines like that that you think, this is someone trying to be a Coen Brother movie almost. <laughs> Even though I don't think the Coens, I'm not sure when they started, I'm not sure they were really that popular at that point. <laughs> like, in the, like, there are a lot of like stylistic, like odd choices that I, I think were purely accidental that feel like a Coen Brothers movie. Like, the yeah. moment when she's battling um, the giant uh, Asian guy billed as Professor Tua Kakanawa, I believe. Um, let's see here. But yeah, he basically has her head in a leg lock, and then she stabs him in the side with the toes with a knife that she picked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which and it was weird because she had to. It was so badly done because she had to go out of her way to position herself between his legs so he could actually catch her like that. <laughs> well, like for a martial artist, she does very little martial artist, but when she does, you're like, oh wow, you're really good. <laughs> it she was as believe she was as believable as this movie would let her. I'll give her that. You know, well, there's only so more- much you can do. Well, yeah, because, like I said, like, the choreographer was just horrible. Like, when she has to run at, um, Dozu, is the guy's name. Professor Toru Takanaka is the actor. She has, she, there's a point where she basically runs at the guy and jumps around, jumps at his head. And then has to turn herself around. And I'm like, that's the most unnatural fight move. And I know you <laughs> did it simply so you could get on top of him. Yes. And I, I thought she was going to do, like, a wrestling Hurricane Rana. I was excited. I thought she was going to somehow flip this guy. Man. I, was, I was into it. And then she just started, like, turning around on him. And I'm like, well, okay. Well, <laughs> so disappointing. What's weird is, like, Professor Toru Tanaka seems like a wrestler. Cause I'm think, like... Yeah, he looks like... Well, I, I swear I, I'm sure he's in a lot of movies. I, I've... Because I recognize him from something. <laughs> so he same here, and I'm like, I look him up, and I'm like, I don't, like, you don't. Not many people go around with the name Professor as a part of their actual billing. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> oh, like, oh, that's why he was in the Running Man. <laughs> okay, that's why I know him from the Running Man, one of the greatest movies ever. <laughs> Okay, does he kind of look the... I know it wasn't him, but I thought... I know it's probably from James Bond. He reminded me of the shoe-throwing guy from Boston Powers. <laughs> I know that... I know I knew it wasn't him, but I was like, well, he... That's exactly the character he reminds me of. He's just a big, giant, you know, Asian guy that's supposed to be the muscle and no one ever, like, talks about him. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only that, but, like, he has this weird hierarchy of henchmen. And every step of the way, the henchmen are like, hey, something's not right. He's like, screw it, don't care. I'm like, I Which, know the henchmen, but they at least listen to him. And you know what? The uh, obsession with the whoever betrayed him before might have actually played off pretty well if you had actually played on that, you know? If he's, he's, there are obvious reasons to distrust her, and everyone's telling you to, but you can't because she reminds you of someone else. But and that's that a plays, better movie. That, that, that plays right back into, there's a really bad, there's a better movie inside of this movie. Yes. Right down Absolutely. to Absolutely, and that... This is Jason Hannibal. We'll track him. Even over the... What was it? Over Everest. It's like, no. The Andes. (laughs) I was okay. I liked that one. That was a good one. (laughs) That was was clever enough. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that they even, like, point out, like, historical inaccuracies in what people say. All right. (laughs) We got to cut it off here. We're we're hitting our time limit. Uh, I want to thank you for... Oh yeah, we could talk about this one forever. That, that one was. <laughs> if that's you haven't a seen Catch the Heat, I, I personally recommend it. It's available on an Amazon video. I won't say it's quite this bad, but it's almost like the room of action movies. It really like, for... is. <laughs> Only, I would say it's more bearable. Yeah, it's not that bad, but it's that kind of like you should probably watch this because it's <laughs> fascinating how this ended up happening. You'll wonder forever. Um. And Fargo is, as we've said, an American classic, and I think one of the greatest movies in the latter half of the 20th century. And shameless plug, read my reviews every Friday <laughs> for the show. <laughs> All right. 
everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us. Join us next time. I don't know what we'll be doing or who I'll be with, but it's part of the adventure. Say goodbye, Bo. See you later, everyone.